To stand in the flesh between darkness and light is to love you with love. And welcome to Emmaus Way on Super Bowl Sunday, I guess. We have, we have endured Super Bowl in Emmaus Way, I think, for about 11 years. And I, I got nervous today. It's like we haven't had a Panther Super Bowl, I think, in a long time. So you guys, we don't really believe in kind of like the secret special rewards in heaven. But if we got it wrong... You guys are so in. I mean, you're like, you're so living it. Uh, but we're going to turn to uh, our crew behind me here. for the. We're going to do one of two things. We're either going to do the community song or we're going to have Aiden and Mimi leave it, lead us in a river dance competition. <laughs> Which should we do? Uh, or should we take a vote? River, river dance. dance. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Next week we'll do that. We'll, they'll, they'll train up for that. So you guys want to lead us in the community song? You guys ready? Open up our eyes to see, plant the seed of understanding, flow it up like the tallest tree. Open up our ears to listen, open up our eyes to see, plant the seed of understanding, flow it up like the tallest tree. Thanks guys, that was great. I want to get that first line wrong every time. It's a statement about me, but I want to say eyes first. It just doesn't work right. You guys got it right. Thank you guys so much. Well, hey, I'm really excited to, uh, I'll introduce Pam here in a little bit, but really excited that you're here uh, tonight and get to hear my friend Pam Wilms uh, speak. She's uh, been a real gift to me through 20 years of conversation about um, the future uh, systems, uh, hopes for the kingdom of God, all of those things. So you are in for a treat tonight. Uh, I, I've heard her speak many times and I'm and, and really excited to have her to Mayus Way. Uh, but um, just a quick announcement or two before I turn it right back to Mark. Um, the one thing that I know of coming up immediately on the calendar is that this Thursday night is a Metro Council meeting for... Um, for uh, Durham Can. It's kind of where we plan the agenda of the next big assembly, which is about a month out. Um, also had an incredible trip to uh, D.C. this week on the Do Not Stand Idly By campaign, and I'll tell you more about that. Some amazing stories about what's going on in the realm of violence prediction, prediction and changing of gun technology, all those things. So it's been a big week. So if you're interested in being part in the Metro Caucus, we'll probably hope to have like two to three Emmaus Way people there, and I'll be attending on Thursday night. You can talk to me after the gathering about that. Um, Emily, uh, anything about um, minister's liturgy, anything that's coming up immediately on that? Twenty 
21st. So yes. two more Sundays. Two more Sundays. Okay. So you guys know. Yeah. Ash Wednesday. Is oh, yes. <laughs> there might be a little church calendar thing kind of coming here. Yes, that we should say that. embodied all that's bad in American culture. I think I got two Super Bowl jokes in and forgot Ash Wednesday. So I'm on a big roll here. Uh, uh, but anyway, Mark, you want to lead us? Man, I, Molly, I'm glad we hired you. We might have missed Ash Wednesday. And it's on a Wednesday this year, right? So that's fortuitous. It worked out like that.
Thanks, SK, for reminding me in the last couple of weeks about how much I like doing this song. I've said it before about this about this tune, but um, what I like about it, and this this is a song that I think could easily go like in an absolution space um, as well as a preparatory kind of space. And, and what I love about this song is that it does not um, it does not deny the realities of the difficult of relate the difficulty of relationships. Instead. Um, the protagonist of the song, if you want to call it that, the, the person who's in the first person in the song. Um, there's no braggadocio. There's no, like, you know, um, I'm this awesome, you know, guy that you should try to hook up with. Instead, it's much more saying uh, that if I've got anything to offer, it's just that I'm going to hang around and that when times get tough, I'm still going to be here. So I, I think it's a beautiful song and hope, hope you can sing with me and enjoy it. Learned you give what you can get. 
Thank you so much, your usual uh, brilliant self in terms of this idea. In the music night, one of the things that struck me so strongly was we were singing and thinking about resilient relationship from a personal level to a more cosmic and divine level, and uh, that's going to fit beautifully in the conversation that we have today of what how do we envision how we relate to each other. But before we get into that, I want to give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ. I give you a special challenge tonight just to find somebody you don't know. <laughs> You're going to fail at that one. <laughs> but do stand up and greet each other, and I'll give us a shout, and we'll get, uh, we'll get Pamela in action here. All right, please stand up. I think we've got some technology working here, thanks to Sir Ben Haas, facilitator extraordinaire. Um, hey, I'm really excited that you're, you guys are going to get to hear my friend uh, Pam tonight. Really excited about that. Um, I should say, by, by way of introduction, actually I'm not doing any of her bio tonight. It's a long one. Look it up. She's like taught everywhere. Uh, we've been friends for, uh, how many, like 90s for sure. Um, and it, so early 2000, uh, this is not her first trip to Emmaus Way. She came when we were in Francesca's space. So like circa year one or year two, she was teaching at Duke or something. And so came through or out at RTP. So this is her second trip. Um, um, she is uh, 
a little sad. She's pulling for the Broncos tonight. She's a Denver person, so uh, be nice. My third Super Bowl joke now. Can I like, who are you pulling for on Ash Wednesday, uh, Pam? <laughs> but uh, but anyway, um, yeah. And she's a, but she loves Cam Newton, which is a good thing. She's a fan of Cam Newton. But um, but anyway, Pam is going to talk to us about. Um, a project that she's been working on for more than a decade, the Soul of the Next Economy, and it fits, this is all I'm going to say, it fits so beautifully with what we've been reading in pub group on the, especially the two economies by Wendell Berry, this notion that Molly and I have been leading us in, in terms of, uh, of a lexicon of Hebrew theology on peace rest, how we live together in this world. And one of the things that I know is at times a, a weakness of our community is we're, we're powerfully deconstructive. We look at the things that, that don't work in our world and yearn for something else. This is what I really love about Pam, besides being a great friend, is when I've been with her, I'm always deeply informed about the possibility of what's next and what can be and where it's happening already. So Pam, grab this mic and do some, do some next economy. Great. Thank you. Good to be with you all. I uh, was here speaking at Duke on, on Friday, and I called Tim and said, I'm going to be in town. Should we do something? And uh, I, then we found out the Panthers were going to be in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I called him. I said, nobody's going to be there, are they? And, and he said, well, it's not a very Super Bowl-y crowd at our church, but it's obviously a party crowd, whether it's a Super bowl crowd or not. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so uh, let's, let's open in prayer. Creator God, be with us in this place. Show us what you would have us to learn from each other tonight. We thank you for all that you are doing in the world through our local and our global economies, and I pray that you would show us the picture of the shalom economy. Show us our role in participating with you in redemption and restoration and beauty. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, uh, so... This is the picture of the name of the soul of the next economy with our iconic um, sound sign up there that was there for a minute. Uh, what you think that's a sunrise or a sun- sunset? Sunset. Yeah. Set. Rise. Approaching meteor. Okay. How many say rise? Okay. How many say set? Okay, we've got about an, and how many of you would not raise your hand regardless of what I ask? <laughs> yes. We had about half and half, but a bunch of people that didn't, didn't raise their hands at all. Uh, if I tell you that this is San Francisco, it gives you a bit of a clue. It's a set. But I like to use this picture because people can't tell whether it's a sunrise or a sunset. And what we're dealing with right now in the world is there's something that's dying off. Something big, significant, that's dying off, and then something wanting to be born. And we're seeing that everywhere. We're seeing that in the economy. This is, this is a quote from a friend, Otto Schormer, in his book, uh, which he quotes Lakoff Havel. We live in an era of intense conflict and massive institutional failures, a time of painful endings 
and of hopeful beginnings. It is a time that feels as if something profound is shifting, a dying and dying, while something else, as the playwright and Czech president, Vlachov Havel, put it, wants to be born. I think there are good reasons for suggesting that the modern age has ended. Today, many things indicate that we are going through a transitional period when it seems that something is on its way out and something else is painfully being born. It is as if something were crumbling, decaying, and exhausting itself, while something else, still indistinct, were rising from the rubble. When I talk about new economy, I'm talking about that which is rising from the rubble that we are creating. The root words of economy are the Greek words oikos and nomos, which means taking care of the home. If it was first used in a monastery in the 1400s, referring to the economy of the monastery, does everyone have good food? Is everyone taken care of? Does everyone have work to do? What is the economy of this monastery? It's the taking care of the home for everyone. So as I look at the next economy, I look at our local living economies and the global economy, I think, what is the global taking care of the home for 9 billion people? And what's our role in shalom theology? What's our role in the call to participate with God in redemption, restoration, as we look at quickly moving towards sharing this planet with 9 billion people? So that's, we're going to talk systems thinking. My work, the soul of the next economy is the intersection of systems thinking, our sacred narratives, and the shift to a regenerative economy. How do we measure wealth beyond GDP? And uh, so I'm going to dive into that, dive into the intersection of that, and get your responses to that. So I want to start with a, um, a quick video. I'm going to start, we're going to jump to the world population video. And uh, this is just two minutes. And be thinking when you watch this what comes up for you theologically. Okay, so what was coming up for folks? This is where you all talk. Iceland is still going strong with less than a million people. (laughs) Mark just got back from (laughs) us. Western insignificance for like the vast majority of that time. Like there were huge population drops in India and China long before the colonial period even thought about making Americans. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in my mind, that says something that would say insignificance because there, there were indigenous people living in the United States and you're just more concentrated in millions of people and so it's kind of like we're like oh nobody was there because there were concentrations of millions of people but I mean that says something about how we think about things too right that's true that's true So if shalom is about a relationship with the land and relationship with other people, it's hard to imagine how how any system could adapt to this much change this quickly. Mm. Um, so it's just, I can imagine 
when there was little change, you could have a vision for Shalom, but when there's that much change that fast, it's just, how do you, how do you maintain those relationships? It's, right, right. So, anything else? I don't know what it means for Shalom, but it was really surprising to see places disappear with the rise of the Mongols and the Black Plague, like entire sections that were white just went black. Mm-hmm. That was kind of disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this picture of shalom is this picture of wholeness and this picture of building wholeness into not only our own systems but in community and in how we share the planet with everyone. And uh, so this picture to me tells us we need to behave completely differently in so many ways when it comes to how we look at war, how we look at food systems, how we look at business systems. My work is primarily, my work is, is with leaders in all systems, helping them see healthy systems for a regenerative economy, but I work a lot with business leaders, and I will talk about that, but as we look at this, we look at what our needs are, and what it's challenging us to. So now I want to show the Wombat. If you pull up this silly little 30-second video, but there's some strong theology in, uh, in our Wombat friend. Okay. I, uh, silly little Wombat video, but it's got some deep theology in that Wombat video on Shalom, on sharing the planet, on how we need to behave with the rest of the world. So I know this crowd is a group of people that I do not need to make the case for what's going on environmentally and, and what we're doing to the planet. Tim said, I want you to come in and, and make the, the case for the hope of what is going on in this shift to a new economy. So I'm going to quickly, just so that we're all on the same page, I'm going to quickly go through my slides that kind of set up the state we're in and then move to this conversation of regenerative economy and what that means for our role as followers of Jesus and reflect on that with you on our, uh, our role as, as followers of Jesus. So this, this slide is the natural step slide, which shows we've got declining life-sustaining resources and increasing societal demands for those resources. Right, And we have a very unsustainable system on the left, and we've got to flip that to decrease our demands on the, our life-sustaining resources and increase the, um, um, the supply of them. So if you flip. So we're dealing with the shift from an industrial economy. We're dealing, dealing with the shift on the left from the modern age, from the industrial age, the, the mental models on the left, there's certain sentimental models that we dealt with that weren't necessarily a bad thing. They, we, we were creating really wonderful uh, machines and, and lifestyles that we thought were going to make us much happier. And so uh, this, this is uh, the shift on the left, if you, yeah, you hit it and see 
We've got population growth. We've got peak oil. We've got peak water. There's all kinds of things we have to deal with as we shift to this, this as a sustainable economy. I call it a regenerative economy. And uh, we'll, when we're dealing with mental models, we're dealing with, with um, the collective conscious and the collective set of worldviews that we hold. If we use the word sustain, we're looking at sustaining. And that's not going to get us anywhere. We need to get to the place of regenerative so we're, we're in the shift to a regenerative economy on the, on the right. What are some of the mental models that we held on the left? What were some of the mental models that created the industrial age? Unlimited markets. Unlimited markets, Always absolutely. Market. Yep. Dominion over nature. Yep, dominion over nature. Yep. Increased efficiency. Passing, you're passing off the effects of production as externalities, right? Mm. Put, it, put it elsewhere. Somewhere, right. some other nation, some other process. Right. Push all the externalities and don't even think about the externalities of the processes of production. And get very far away from anything that disturbs us. We got very far away from the making of our food. We got very far away from the, um, the refuse of our food, uh, all kinds of things. We, just, we created these beautiful little machine-driven lives that were supposed to keep all of the negative away from us. And we had, we had a mental model of unlimited resources. We, they, folks creating the Industrial Revolution did not have a mental model that we're destroying the earth. They had the mental model that we have unlimited resources to work with and we want to support positive lifestyle for man in the process of this. So uh, my, all of my work over the last 25 years has been in the shift from mechanistic models <coughs> of organizing as people in churches, in businesses, in government. We, in the industrial age, looked at social systems, social systems like machines also. And my work has been in the shift to living systems models of how we gather as people. Living systems models of leadership and business, living systems models we've been shifting in the church. A lot of Tim's work has been in that shift to living systems thinking as a pastor, as how we, um, as we gather as a church. So the mechanistic language is dominate pressure force. That, and we're shifting towards the language of nurture, cycle, grow. And we've been doing that in so many places. And now my work is in doing that thinking about the economy. Thinking about how do we drive new measures? How do we drive uh, a whole new way of being together and taking care of the home? We, one of our challenges, well, I'll come up with that after a while. I'm going to have you all look at these three quotes and see what comes up for you when you look at these three quotes. The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around. Business exists for the flourishing of life, not for making money. 
And of the 100 largest economies on the planet, 53 are corporations and 47 are nation states for the first time in the history of the world. Okay? So I want you to turn to somebody again, say, what comes up for you when you see this? And then a second question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus based on what comes up for you when you see this? Okay? Okay, these are the conversations I always hate to stop, but, uh, but let's hear what's coming up for folks. Um, the third one, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, like, uncomfortable with it. We, we like, do, do we think that those 47 nation states are totally awesome? Um, and that, and that, and that the actual, like, that should be 100 out of 100 are the nation states, um, when, like, maybe we should be looking at it from the perspective of, can we get anybody in those top 100 to subscribe to number two? Mm-hmm. And yeah. if it's company, it's totally awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no judgment on that. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's a, well, this, this depends on how we read it, but that's why I work in the sustainable business, because they have so much power. Um, and they've got the most power on the planet right now, and I would actually say they, I just came back from Washington in the National Prayer Breakfast, and that ministry started under Eisenhower to come alongside people of power uh, on behalf of the way of Jesus. The people who had the most power on the planet under Eisenhower, most, you know, from a lot of measurements, were the people sitting in the U.S. House and, and Senate. And now, I think it's, it's much more important for the president of a small country to fly into the Silicon Valley or into Redmond, Washington, on behalf of poverty in their country, than to fly to Washington. So we have to look at, at that reality. Yeah, so I agree with you. <clears throat> what else comes up? Somewhere way back in the room, back there. <laughs> <laughs> what? How did other people read that? Because that was your first question, how people read it? Yeah, just I yeah. didn't see either way. How did other people read it? I feel like it's a truth that isn't recognized. Um, at a base level, almost everything in our economy is based off of some raw material. 
that will run out at some point in time. But we like to treat the Earth as if there are unlimited resources, which was mentioned earlier. So I don't think I don't think people like to recognize the fact that unless there are shifts towards new ways of doing business or production or energy, we're going to have a serious problem on our hands. Right. Absolutely. We we destroy our environment. We have no we have no business economy left. There's no natural resources to be able to make products from, to be able to, to run what we now define as the economy. I think the middle quotation, um, not, not only does it like kind of flip the order of two things, but it also creates a contrast that I think isn't necessarily um, widely accepted uh, in the capitalist system, that the making of money and the flourishing of life are not the same thing. <clears throat> like, I, I feel like, especially when you when you like think about um, when you hear about like downtown development or whatever, like the capitalism succeeding is like is the answer to the problem, not the cause of the problem. Right. And, and, and so, like saying saying that business exists or should exist for the flourishing of life not the making of money. Like, it separates the things in a way that I think most people, or many people would even think about having to separate them. Right. Well, uh, I can say, like, the flourishing of life is kind of the flourishing of life for who? You know, especially, like, here in Durham, like, downtown, like, is flourishing you know, on some scales and has been really good for some people. But for people that are outside of that circle... Life has not really changed at all, and maybe it's it's probably gotten worse. The the middle quote is my quote, and that we started trading goods and services. We created business because I could do something better than you could, and vice versa. So it didn't make sense for us to do both things. So we started trading goods and services. This eventually built up business. It's really only been in the last 40 years that we've made business only about making money, and we've gotten very far away from our money. The whole financial industry that, has, that was where nobody has a retirement for 30 years, you have no idea where your 401k is invested, has really only been in the last 40 years that that has really built up significantly. What... The, uh, the moment that really changed my life and my business, my, my undergraduate is in environmental engineering and urban design, uh, and then I went off and did my graduate work in psychology and theology. And I've been working for a long time with leaders in business, helping them with systems thinking. And in 99, I started working with businesses towards a triple bottom line, a social, environmental, as well as an economic bottom line. But this night about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, uh, forever changed my life, even in that, that context. I w- I'd been working in it, but I, I didn't know really how culpable I was. I was at a fundraiser in Colorado for Healing Waters. It's a ministry that builds wells in the developing world for villages that don't have access to clean water. And I was at their fundraiser, and they, were, they told us the story about a village in Central America whose water had been poisoned by an American company upstream. 
Now, I knew these stories, that's why I was working in corporate sustainability. I knew that people left the US to, to do work in other parts of the world so that they didn't have to follow the environmental laws. And for a number of other, for cheaper labor, for not following, all, all kinds of reasons. But this night I heard that story and the next morning I got on the plane and I flew to San Francisco to one of my clients. And I got off the 44th floor of this beautiful building. I was walking down the hallway, um, wood panel, marble floors. I'm headed to the executive boardroom where I'm going to spend the day helping the senior team learn systems thinking to improve their economic bottom line. And just before I got to the boardroom, I turned to the left I saw these pictures on the wall that forever changed my life and my business. And that was this company's land holdings in the same Central American country that I'd seen the night before, their factories. Now, I spent the day not knowing if it was my client that was poisoning the water to this village, but I knew there was a systems problem in my own business. By day, I was helping corporations go after their economic bottom line, And by night, I was on the board of not-for-profits trying to clean up the mess. I'll say that again. By day, I was on helping corporations go after their economic bottom line and make money with my skills. And by night, I was on the board of not-for-profits trying to clean up up the environmental and social mess. So I realized we have a false false binary in this country, that not-for-profits do good and for-profits make money. In order to share the planet with 9 billion people, in order to sustain life, flourishing life on the planet, we need for-profits to be doing good. And we have to shift the investment base, the voting base, and um, the consuming base. It's up. We are all part of these corporations. This whole system is us. If we take Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and Buddhism... We have more than 80% of the country, and none of those sacred narratives define GDP as a life well lived. At the core of every system is the measurement of that system. Systems thinking, what gets measured, gets done. And at the core of our economic system, the core of everything in how we do business together, is gross domestic product. Right now, we measure wealth by the speed at which we kill things. We measure wealth and development by the speed at which we extract natural resources, put it through a consumerist system, and put it out as toxic waste. And the faster we do that, the more developed we're considered, and the more wealthy we're considered as a nation. And that's insane. That can't be our measurement. We've got to measure wealth based on what values we hold. As people, every day we get up and create an economy that doesn't fit any of our core values. We create an economy that is an extractive economy, a degenerative economy. As long as, as GDP is at the core of our economic system, we have a degenerative economy where every living system is in decline and the rate of decline is accelerating. I'm going to read this, this quote from Paul Hawken. Um, at a talk he gave at Portland University in in 2009. It's as relevant today as ever, and a fabulous sermon. 
When I was invited to give this speech, I was asked if I could give a simple short talk that was direct, naked, taut, honest, passionate, lean, shivering, startling, and graceful. No pressure there. Let's start with this with the startling part. Class of 2009, you are going to have to figure out what it means to be human on earth at a time when every living system is in decline and the rate of decline is accelerating. Kind of a mind-boggling situation. But not one peer-reviewed paper published in the last 30 years can refute that statement. Basically, civilization needs an operating system. You are the programmers and we need it within a few decades. The planet came with a set of instructions, but we seem to have misplaced them. Important rules like don't poison the water, soil, or air, don't let the earth get overcrowded, and don't touch the thermostat have been broken. Buckminster Fuller said, Spaceship Earth was so ingeniously designed that no one has a clue that we are on one, flying through the universe at a million miles per hour with no need for seatbelts, lots of room and coach, and really good food, but all that is changing. There's some, some deep theology in that, plenty of room and coach that Tim's working on with his dissertation. <laughs> There's invisible writing on the back of your diploma you will receive, and in case you didn't bring the lemon juice to decode it, I can tell you what it says. You are brilliant, and the earth is hiring. The earth couldn't afford to send recruiters or limos to your school. It sent you rain, sunsets, ripe cherries, night-blooming jasmine, and that incredibly cute person you were dating. Take the hint, and here's the deal. Forget that the task of planet saving is not possible in the time required. Don't be put off by people who know what is not possible. Do what needs to be done and check to see if it was impossible, only if you were done. That's the world I play in. I play with the people who are drastically changing business, drastically changing government, and are driving some beautiful, beautiful systems. The, um, Paul goes on to say, when asked if I am pessimistic or optimistic about the future, my answer is always the same. If you look at the science about what is happening on Earth and aren't pessimistic, you don't understand the data. But if you meet the people who are working to restore this earth and the lives of the poor and you aren't optimistic, you haven't got a pulse. What I see everywhere in the world are ordinary people willing to confront despair, power, and incalculable odds in order to restore some semblance of grace, justice, and beauty to this world. The poet Adrian Rich wrote, So much has been destroyed, I have cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. There could be no better description. Humanity is coalescing. It is reconstituting the world. And the action is taking place in schoolrooms, farms, jungles, villages, campuses, companies, refuge camps, deserts, fisheries, and slums. A friend of mine tweeted from Davos a few years ago who's been involved in corporate sustainability with me that the World Economic Forum in Davos, for those of you who don't play in that crazy world, uh, it's where all the world economists come together uh, once a year. and It's a big soup place, and he tweeted, the next economy is going to be presenced by kids in garages and slums. 
and the current economy is going to be defended by suits at conferences. And that is so true. There's this beautiful emerging economy that is looking at the business of sustaining 9 billion souls and the, and the shift is happening in business and government. So this is the business approach. And then I'm gonna, I'll, I'll shift to the regenerative economy that's happening in all sectors. But this is, many of you have heard. How many folks know what a B Corp is? For Benefit Corporation? Okay. So a few of you don't, I'll just say that quickly. For Benefit Corporations are corporations that are required to show a social and environmental bottom line in addition to an economic bottom line. So it gets away from for-profit and not-for-profit. It gets to for-benefit. The long-term goal is that we will have publicly held companies. Right now it's very difficult for a publicly held company to be for-benefit because we all have 401ks that all we're looking at is our quarterly shareholder earnings, right? Everything's bundled and sold and securities. We have no idea what those companies are doing on the planet. We are part of the degenerative economy by not asking the question of what these companies are doing. And the beautiful thing is, in I live in the Silicon Valley. We've got venture capitalists who are on the cutting edge of this that are asking, how do we invest in companies that are driving a triple bottom line? How do we invest in the companies that will give, provide great products as well as, as not destroy the planet? and uh, care for people in the process. So that in, in our world, we've moved from this idea of a footprint this is what we extract from the world. Our handprint is what we take, give back to the world. So for a long time in the sustainability world, we talked about footprint and handprint. But that's not enough. We can be destroying a lot and giving back without really balancing out what we're destroying. If we're destroying the environment, but we're giving back in education and social sector, it's not going to help us. In the, in, in the end, there is no environmental injustice that's not also a social injustice ever. The church is much more willing to talk about social injustice in many places than they are willing to talk about environmental injustice. But the poor always get the bad water. They always live downstream. They always get the bad ear. There is never an environmental injustice that's not also a social injustice, ever. That's not a part, a part of our call to care for the least of these, is the environmental call. They are inextricably linked. And so as we look at these things, we look at our role, there's just these beautiful things happening. We, um, I just saw this morning, we have our first IPO that's about to happen with a B Corp. I never thought that would happen so fast. 2007 was when we launched B Corps in Berkeley at the, at the Bali Conference, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. At that point, there was not even a state that had a form for a B Corp. So 30 hippie companies that I'd been working with came together and they hired the lawyers to write the laws so that we could even at least form B Corps. And only eight years later, there were 29 states with a legal form of a benefit corp. And we have our first publicly held benefit corp in Brazil. Brazil beat us. Um, but uh, we have a U.S. IPO that I just saw this morning. 
uh, coming out. We have, this is something that, that came up yesterday. Um, I'm going to quote it exactly. I, I, last night with MK and, and Tim, I um, just uh, guessed it, but it's just too beautiful of a, of a direct quote. Um, I should have pulled it. Okay. It's, it, this is in Bloomberg. Okay. This is Bloomberg quoting, Goldman Sachs says it may be forced to fundamentally question how capitalism is working. <laughs> okay. For those of us who've been working on large system change, I started working in this in 99. I made up the term regenerative economy at a Society for Organizational Learning conference with Peter Senge in, in Cambridge in 2006. In large, terms of large-scale systems change, you start to see the cracks that you've got a tipping point that you are not going back from. I now know, I, I've been working in coaching for many years. I know that when I work, when I go into organizations and I look for life in the system. When we want to make a system healthy, we go in and we walk, look for the pockets of life where things are working in healthy ways as an organizational development consultant. And then I start to link those healthy parts of the system. All healthy systems change at the cellular level. We get our bodies healthy when our bodies start to communicate with the rest of the body. When I've got a herniated disc in my neck, and I have to listen to what's going on in my hips and what's going on in my feet to find out what's going on in my neck. There's so much about my body that I have to learn about taking care of the system, and it's, and it's true with our larger systems. So we're seeing this large-scale systems change, and we're looking, we, we bring all these, these systems of, of health together, and then you start to see the tipping point. You start to see the tipping point to a healthy system. And when you see something like that, when you in the... Uh, that, that picture of the industrial economy and the regenerative economy. In all systems change, the people who are in power in the existing system hold on so tightly at the end that they look crazy and irrational such that the middle shifts. Does that make sense? That's what we're seeing. We're seeing this shift. When you see that quote as somebody who's been looked at like a silly little California girl, when I told him we're going to measure wealth beyond GDP, that was now a question at Davos this year, at the center stage of Davos. How do we measure wealth beyond GDP? So this piece that we're working in is, it's moving, it's happening. So if you... So this is the regenerative economy, and it's happening in all of these systems. You all are in academia. You're seeing it. I'm, I'm, I've been hearing stories from Tim of many of the things that you all are working on. You're seeing it happen in academia, a lot of the research in it. We're seeing it in business with B Corps. Business was the, had to partner with government and um, finance industry to start to write the laws for B Corps. And then we have to shift the consumer base, the investment base, and the voting base. The shift in NGOs is happening. The, the challenge with NGOs is they're all funded by the current, the current economy. 
Uh, and so when I go in to work with organizations, I'm not asking about the 10% they're giving away to philanthropy. I'm not talking about their corporate social responsibility, which usually falls into a 10%. I'm asking, how do you make the first 90%? What does your supply chain look like? Do you have human trafficking in your supply chain? I know enough to know that there's no place in the mall I can go to to buy clothes without human trafficking in the supply chain because I know they're not asking the question. And it's huge in the textile industry around the world. It's huge in cotton. But until the consumer base asks, the corporations aren't going to ask the question because they legally have to be bound to quarterly shareholder earnings. And so their boards will tell their sustainability people, don't you look into that until our consumer base tells you to. One of our leading companies, Nike, uh, is one of the leading companies in, in measuring a social environmental bottom line. They were the poster child of social bad behavior in the mid-90s, right? So we all think of Nike and we think, oh. But they are doing amazing work because in the mid-90s, they were able to convince their board that you don't take on a social bottom line, you lose your economic bottom line. So they got to get ahead of the, the leading CEO of a publicly held company I work with. All the hippie companies are doing a lot of really cool work that are privately held. Patagonia, Seventh Generation, uh, were a lot of the companies that started the B Corp movement. Um, publicly held companies are still challenged, but uh, Paul Pullman is our leading CEO of, of a publicly held company. So here's, um, the, in, in systems thinking, there's a woman named Danella Meadows who was at Dartmouth. And this is key for us in follow, as followers of Jesus and our work in the kingdom as the church. She talked about points to intervene in a system. She came up with 12 points as you look at natural systems and apply that to social systems. That's the shift. We, social systems aren't mechanistic. We have to look at natural systems and what do we have to learn from them. So she came up with the top 12 intervention points. In leading change in old systems, you start top-down. Jesus never talked about top-down change. And everything he called us to in scripture, he used living systems examples. He he talked about seeds and soil and vines and branches and bodies. I will go back into into a more traditional church and I'll start talking about learning from biology and learning from living systems. And they say, that sounds really new age, Pam. Hmm, kind of new age teacher used living systems as models for how we're supposed to come together. So in the learning, Dana Meadows came up with the top 12 points. The others are really geeky systems thinking, and those of you who are into it can go look that up, points to intervene in a system. But what I wanted to show here is the top two points to intervene in any social system. Number two is the mindset or paradigm out of which the system arises. The mental models the subconscious mental models being held in the system are the most powerful part of any system. How many folks remember the moment, I know this this crowd has already made this shift, remember the moment that you realized the gospel, some of you might have grown up in this, but some of us came from a more conservative evangelicalism. Remember the moment that you realized that all of your theology was an evacuation theology. 
that was about, the gospel was about what happened to you when you die, not how we're called to live here. Uh, That's a mental model. That's a mental model that was subconsciously held for us. And it was so powerful in our lives. Remember the first time you heard it, you thought, oh, this person, this person is not teaching the gospel. Because there's this, this, it starts to scare you. They're a false teacher. They're a, and then you go, wow, wait a minute. That fits a lot more with what I think of the teachings of Jesus. And the number one place to, to intervene in any social system is the places that have the power to transcend those paradigms. And that's us as the church. That's us as followers of Jesus to say, what is the kingdom of God? The values of the kingdom of God really mimic what we're talking about in this shift to a regenerative economy. <coughs> the places that I've worked with leaders for 25 years, we come more alive when we're focused on something bigger than ourselves. I ask a question to leaders, tell me about a time you've come most alive. The most hardened capitalists who spent their entire life making money never say, I, I was flying, flying around on my private jet or I was sitting in my te- second home in Tuscany. They all come up with something that they were part of creating betterment for people, for the common good, through what they did. As, granted, I'm always with leaders. So we all come alive when we're focused on something bigger than ourselves. The organizations I work with that start to look at a triple bottom line, they come more alive when they're focused on something bigger than making money. And we're going to come more alive as a society when we're focused on something bigger than GDP. And what does it mean for us, for all of you, if you flip back to that, the yeah, where are you sitting in this? You have people in this community who are in every part of the system that are driving shift in all parts of the system. What does it mean for us as a body to be part of the shift in this local living economy in Durham? And what does it mean for us individually? Did it be part of the shift as followers of Jesus in whatever part of the taking care of the home we're part of? Now there's, um, if you flip, there's, um, I can go through any of this. This is what we do for systems thinking for change. I don't have time to go through this now. I'm happy to talk to anybody about that. But this is what the goal is for, um, for systems thinking for change, getting people to see a whole view, giving people pictures of hope, systems always change on the margins, seeing our own agency and our own power is crucial, tying our core values on our sacred narratives to this shift. Again, all of our sacred narratives support this shift. And how do we come up with new measures for an abundant regenerative economy? So I I, uh, challenge you all. I wish we had time for you all to give feedback, but I know we have a football game to get to, apparently. (laughs) I will say in the context of that... I have actually, I grew up with season tickets to the Chargers. I was leading a Bible study with Janet Elway during the Bronco days, and so I'm a Bronco fan. I live 15 minutes from the Super Bowl. I'm a Niner fan, too. But my number one team now is the Green Bay Packers. Anybody know why? I've never been to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Because you've never been to Green Bay, Wisconsin. 
No? Anybody know why? Yes. The NFL is a not-for-profit that doesn't pay taxes to the common good. And the Green Bay Packers are owned by the community. And what comes back into the Green Bay Packers, I want to see them win the Super Bowl. I want to see that model succeed. Because I love the game. And so, um, and I have such a hard time with the, with the NFL. So, let's pray. Creator, God, thank you for your work in this world. Thank you for the beauty that you're bringing everywhere in every pocket of the world. Thank you that you are teaching us from Africa, that you're teaching us from Asia, that you're teaching us through the people, through the indigenous people that know how to live in community. Help us to see you. Help us to see what you're teaching us about the, the following of Jesus and his ways through our global, our global village and our global marketplace. Thank you for this community and its passion and heart for your work in the world. We thank you for those children's voices. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.
This is our song of absolution tonight. Um, that I hope these words mean something to you in the sense of, of maybe, um, may, maybe in a world that, that we're asking, what can I do? How can I be a part of a solution rather than a problem? Or is there a way I can be part of a solution rather than a problem? Is maybe it starts with, uh, with caring for one another. Maybe it starts with thinking about the broader impact that we uh, personally have in the world. It's times like these.
times like these we learn to love again It's times like these time, time It's important, I think, reframing for you guys out in your world. In Jesus' time on the earth, in his ministry of three years, his greatest challenge was to the people, the, the people of faith, the religious people who sat at the top of systems of injustice. And that's us, as U.S. Christians. We sit at the top of global systems of injustice. So what's the confession and what's the call? Thanks so much, Pam, um, for your needed and challenging words and to also see that there is hope in a regenerative economy. When you read that about Goldman Sachs, yeah, that's it. I want to call it Golden Sachs. I was like, no, that's wrong. Um, I was like, oh, wow, that's a big deal. And I'm a girl who, I know I'm a part of the economy, but economics is over my head. But it shouldn't be, right? I should become informed. Um, So thank you so much. And Pam is around for those who are not rushing off from the Super Bowl or maybe want to know they can watch the Super Bowl on repeat. Um, Pam is around to talk more um, and to dialogue more. Um, I, too, can make a Super Bowl joke. My prayer, I'm from East Tennessee, 30 minutes outside of Knoxville. I feel like the Panthers need to win because I've been living in Carolina for five years. Just... Please don't annihilate Peyton Manning. That's my only 
children are still named after Peyton Manning in East Tennessee to this day. He is Jesus in Tennessee. I think they are hoping for his second coming after he retires and will move back to Knoxville. Um, So as you watch the game, just pray they don't annihilate Peyton. That's my only hope. Hear now these words from Wendell Berry. Um, When I was thinking about tonight, I just, this poem resonates. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And I think as people who are captivated by the gospel, the table is a place where we can come when the despair of the world grows in us and we wonder what our lives and our children's lives will be. And I think weekly it is a place where we rest in grace and freedom But we also know that the gospel and Jesus calls us to go out and change and to be a part of a regenerative economy. We can't stay at the table just like we can't stay always in the peace of wild things. We can come and get nourished and have strength from one another and from the bread and the wine so that we can go out and be about a new economy. So come to the table Feed one another bread and wine. Talk with Pam. Go cheer on the Panthers. Um, Thanks so much for being here tonight.